Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, June 18th, and we're getting together to talk Confluent. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined by Fool.com's co-chief checkup commander of core cloud computing companies, Brian Feroldi. Brian, how you doing? Well done, Dylan. Well done. <laughs> Yet another time where you nailed my title. I need to get more yeah. creative. What'd you think of that uh, that little pun there, getting together to talk Confluent? Dylan, I'm very proud of you for coming up with that all by yourself. <laughs> I need that validation. I appreciate it so much. Um, yes, we, we are talking about a another cloud computing company another business that's going to, I think, check a lot of the Brian Feroldi boxes, uh, if I'm being honest. Uh, And we have this one courtesy of one of our listeners, Brian. That's wonderful. Yeah, this is a company that I hadn't heard of before until the S1 come out uh, came out. Uh, So the company we're talking about is Confluent, a ticker symbol CFLT. Yet again, whenever these S1s come out in these tech companies, if it's SaaS-based, I'm always going to take a look. And as I was reading through it, I was like, there's a lot to like here. There's a lot to like. Shout out to our listener, Zafan, for giving us uh, the heads up on this one. One of the joys of what we get to do is you know, basically have ideas thrown at us by, by listeners, by members of The Fool, um, and, and just get to kick them around and talk about them. Hopefully, you guys enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy doing it, because it's one of my favorite things. It's the highlight of my week. Um, let's get into it, Brian. Uh, what, what, what are the deets here? So what we know so far is that the proposed ticker symbol is CFLT. As of right now, they're going to plan on selling 23 million shares at about $33 each. That number could, of course, change. Uh, if that num- pricing holds, they'll be raising about $700 million, and they'll come public at about a $7.6 billion value- valuation. Now, as both of us were kind of reading through this S1, there this is a complicated story to understand. So I think it's actually pretty helpful to start with the founding story because that can really set the stage. So this company was founded in 2014 by a group of entrepreneurs that were working together at LinkedIn. These, these three co-founders were in charge of rebuilding LinkedIn's data infrastructure uh, from the ground up to be not only based in the cloud, uh, but to really handle the entire, the entire site, which was going through hypergrowth at the time. Now, what they found was there were plenty of options that existing for storing data, like data storage systems have existed for forever, databases, right? But they had a huge problem with allowing that data to talk to each other and unifying it together and making it analyzable. They searched around for a off-the-shelf solution that they could buy for years, and they really didn't come up with anything. So they decided to build their own. Yeah, I want to pull specifically from the prospectus here. Uh, and this is, uh, I believe, Jay Krebs in the founder's letter. What struck us at the time was although there were hundreds of different technologies for storing data, our most acute need was not a problem of storage. What we needed to do was unite all the different applications and data stores that made up a global social network into one coherent system, one that could react and respond continuously and in real time to everything that occurred across a complex fabric of interconnected software systems. This need seemed like it would be common enough, so we assumed there surely would be some product or technology that addressed it and that we must be ignorant of it. But there wasn't. And he goes on to say, though this problem was really at the heart of creating a unified digital business, it hadn't received even a fraction of the commercial or intellectual investment that data storage and databases had. 
when we realized this, we started to build. And we talk about it often, but Brian, a founder identifying a problem is often a very compelling investment thesis. It, it really is. I mean, off the top of my head, I can think of Jeff Lawson at Twilio. He started a company based on a, a problem uh, th- that he had. Toby Luke at Shopify, he had a problem. Uh, he built it. Uh, the co-founders of Wix, they were trying to make a website and they built it. All of those have been really successful uh, companies. So that's a founding story that I can really uh, get behind. Now, what's interesting about the way that they built this from the ground up uh, is they called this system that they built internally Kafta, and they ended up making it open source, and they donated it to the Apache Software Foundation, where it's gone out and really developed a huge number of uh, developers and a community around this product that has really done um, become uh, global. There's tens of thousands of developers that are working on the open source version of Kafta. When they found out, when they when they had this software, um, they realized that there was going to be a whole bunch of companies that needed help, not only uh, deploying this software, they didn't necessarily have the skills. And that's where the founding of Confluent really came from. Yeah, and and just to clarify, uh, you know, we are over the internet, we're not in the same room. It's, I believe it's Kafka, like like the writer, um, so it, just in case, it, sometimes the T's and the K's can kind of blend together. It's a little hard to hear, uh, but but I believe it's Kafka, uh, and and I don't know. If you they are drew correct. Spe- <laughs> I don't know if they drew any specific inspiration uh, from from the author there, but but yeah, it's it's an interesting and maybe less traditional founding story than we're used to. Um, you know, typically you don't hear about people creating something that they think is game changing and then making it open source, uh, and that's precisely what this company did, um, but. I, I think that with this business, uh, you start to piece things together. We talked a little bit about how it's it's a hard one to wrap your head around. I think it's a well-named company. Um, and also, when you start working through precisely what they do and the problem that they're trying to solve, you realize fairly quickly that there are so many applications for this type of solution. There really are. And if you think about where computing is heading in the future, I mean, the amount of data that's being created today is unprecedented, but it's just going to continue to grow over time. Uh, If you're a believer that 5G is going to take off, that AI and machine learning are going to become megatrends, uh, e-commerce, augmented reality, virtual reality, machine learning. I mean, the amount of data that's going to be created out there is set to explode. And the way that we currently uh, use data isn't really set up to handle that kind of volume. Confluent really helps enterprises and companies to take advantage of what's going to happen in data. Yeah. And I think walking through just a couple examples that they provide on use cases, it's helpful for illustrating it because, you know, Brian, data has basically been the buzzword of the last, what, decade, uh, 15 years. You know, it seems like everyone has some angle on organizing data and making sense of data, interpreting data, um, and, and really being able to just kind of walk through how companies are using their solution uh, makes it a little bit easier. For sure. And they have dozens of use cases that they have right on their website if you want to read about them. But for example, uh, they have partnerships with financial services companies and financial services companies use uh, Confluent to uh, secure transactions in any currency and to manage like real time uh, payments and also uh, help with uh, with fraud detection. Uh, They have examples on there from uh, retailers uh, that use uh, Confluent software to make sure all their systems talk to each other to make sure that inventory management and supply chain automation is all done uh, in real time. They have examples of, of Domino's Pizza, for example, handling the complete customer experience. So taking in an order, handling the supply chain, uh, and getting it out to customers in time. All of those things need real-time data access, and Confluent helps them do it. 
Yeah, and, and my understanding, having watched a, a good chunk of videos on YouTube about the business, is that they take a slightly different approach to the way that they are looking at data and the structure of data. And instead of assigning a lot of the relationship to uh, an object or an item, they are tending to look a little bit more in a stream of events with how they're um, using data. And, and I have a primitive understanding of this. So if I'm getting this wrong, excuse me, our listeners. Uh, but, but basically, that allows for a much more versatile interactive and continuous way for uh, developers um, and other folks that are trying to access that data to do so and also make sense of it across other applications. Yeah, they really want, they, they, their, their tagline is to, uh, to to set data in motion. So the way, the way they're saying that data has been stored for decades is it goes into a database and then it just sits there. And it's only useful when it's a query is set out to actually retrieve that data. So rather than data just sitting there with Confluent, they set data in, in motion so that it's always being interacted with in real time from a huge number of, uh, of input sources. That's really the key here. So I, I wonder if our listeners, Zafan, had any idea uh, that this is a subscription business uh, and, and that it would pretty much immediately be something that you were interested in, Brian. No surprises here. Um, for, for the space that we're talking about, the industry we're in, and, and just the fact that this is a cloud-based business, uh, it's going to look pretty familiar to, to a lot of folks. It is basically a software company, uh, a software as a service company at its core that sells its products primarily through a subscription. So there's something called uh, the Confluent platform uh, that can be uh, used by by uh, companies or enterprises uh, on premise uh, in their private cloud or in a uh, public cloud. They also have a product offering called Confluent Cloud, which is their SaaS based offering. Basically, they can meet a company wherever it wants to be and use this software uh, on cloud, on private cloud or on-premise. In addition, they also derive about 10% of their revenue from a services business. That's the professional service and education uh, segment. That is about 10% of revenue. And while it is revenue, it's not really revenue that investors should care about because it's very low margin. Yeah. But as we talk about often when it comes to the services revenue, um, it's necessary, right? Like it, It's kind of a core part of, of what they do. And also really just making sure that their customers are using a product, they're satisfied with the product, and that it's really meeting their needs. Yeah. It's a way of getting your foot in the door with, with a customer. So that's really important. Uh, and speaking of customer, uh, again, this technology is a little bit hard to wrap your head around. So if you're looking for uh, third-party validation, this company already has it. Keep in mind that this company is only seven years old but they have already grabbed 136 of the Fortune 500, including Citigroup, Expedia, Humana, Intel, Lowe's, UC San Diego. And in 2019, Google actually named uh, Confluent their 2019 Google Cloud Tech Partner of the Year. All told, they as of March 31st of 2021, they have more than 2,500 customers on the platform. That figure was up 142% over the prior year. So clearly, they're doing something right. And you know, Brian, when, when we talk about stuff in the cloud and in the software space, you, one of my immediate things is, all right, what's, you know, what's the scope of this? Um, how, how many industries does this apply to? How helpful is this going to be? Because it, it helps you get a better sense of what total addressable market might be, what optionality might look like for a business. Just running through that list, I want to I emphasize it for a second. Citigroup. All right, so you got financials. Domino's Pizza. You have consumer goods. Expedia, online travel, Humana, that's a healthcare business, right? Lowe's, another consumer goods business, UC San Diego, that's that's academia, you know, that's higher education. So there are already so many different industries represented by their customer base. 
That's correct. I mean, name a company that needs data and software to run their business, and that could potentially be a Confluent uh, customer. And pretty much every company on earth has become uh, relies on software to run their business. Same goes for government. So yes, if, if, this, if this business doesn't work out, it's not because the opportunity isn't there. Yeah. And, and so far, based on what we're seeing in terms of the financials, uh, it's working out pretty well. This is an early stage. Um, we, we talked about that, that uh, proposed market cap before being below 10 billion. This is early, relatively high growth business. Um, and the financials indicate that. I mean, that's basically what we're seeing here. In uh, in 2020, uh, this company reported total revenue of 236 million. Uh, that was up 58 uh, percent over the the prior year. And if you drill down a little bit, they have uh, over 2,500 customers, but they have some really big customers uh, already. So already 561 customers are going to spend 100 thousand dollars or more on this platform over the next year. That figure was up 50 percent, and 60 customers are going to spend $1 million on this platform over the next year. That figure was up 82%. If you look at the dollar-based net revenue retention rate, which is a figure that we absolutely love, in the most recent quarter, it was 117%. So that shows that they're getting their foot in the door and then sticking around. So they're doing a great job about growing that top line. Yeah, and they're bringing in a lot of customers. Um, one thing that I think is is kind of interesting um, is you know the 2500 Plus customers um, for 2020, that was 140 percent growth. Um, they're, they're seeing really interesting adoption, and my hunch is this is one of those businesses where once you get in the door, you are going to expand within that business. Use cases are going to emerge. More and more people are going to want to get their hands on it and make use of it. Um, in that sense, what we might see on the top line um, could follow what ultimately is customer acquisition. That's one of the things that this company calls out as a long-term competitive advantage. Once a customer adopts this, this software, and they typically use it for one particular use case in their company, once Confluence gets in there, uh, the power of the platform really starts to grow as other applications and other uses come on, and it's almost like the company gets internal network effects at a local company. So once it gets its foot in the door, it can grow in the company. Now there aren't network effects in the sense that it goes that the more companies that use this, the more customers there are, the more powerful this becomes. But the company does seem to, once it gets its foot in the door, it's really hard to get off this platform. Yeah. So while it doesn't check the traditional network effects box for you, it does kind of check a network effects box. And I know it checks several other boxes for you, Brian. Yeah, that's true. Um, but let's get into the gross margin here because that's always a key thing to uh, to look at. Uh, so the non-GAAP gross margin uh, in the last quarter was 71%. That's a pretty good figure. And what's even more impressive about that is if you uh, tease the gross margin apart a little bit, the, the subscription-based revenue, uh, which is 90% of revenue, that gross margin is 78%. The service revenue bounces up and down, and last quarter that was about 10%. Because this company has a service component to it, you can't necessarily just look at gross margin and compare it to other software companies that don't. So this company has very high margin, uh, so very high margin software sales. Now the top line looks pretty good. However, they are spending 
aggressively uh, to build out their R&D platform and their and their sales team. So because of that, this company is losing gobs of money. Uh, oh, the net loss over the last uh, over the last uh, year was uh, two hundred and thirty million dollars. So that's almost the same as the top line. Now that's on a gap basis, and that includes stock based compensation. If you looked at uh, if you look at free cash flow, free cash flow was about negative eighty seven million dollars uh, last year, and it looks like it's be about on pace that for this year. So the company is nowhere close yet to making money. Yeah. But you, you look at those financials, you figure with a certain amount of scale, um, they could turn on that profitability switch down the road. Not surprising for a company at this size um, and with these growth rates to be losing money. We talk about it all the time. Um, if, you, if you know that you're early on in expanding into your market, you want to get as many customers on board as you can. You're willing to market and spend aggressively to get those customers. The key is just holding on to those customers. And they're doing a great job at that. And it does show you, given the scale that they're already at, again, almost $240 million in trailing 12-month sales. That's a decent-sized number that they're still spending that aggressively that they're losing that much money. Now, the good news is their balance sheet was in pretty good shape prior to coming public. Uh, as of March 31st, $280 million, uh, in cash. They did have about a half a billion in convertible preferred stock. But they did give us an idea about what their balance sheet would look like if they came public at the valuation that they're proposed. And they're basically going to going to have $950 million in cash and no long-term debt. So if that, if that comes to pass, they will have plenty of liquidity to continue to fund themselves for many, many years. Yeah, that's an awfully strong position to be in. Um, I do want to emphasize, you know, we, we, we just threw out the, that top line number and a year ended uh, just under $240 million in revenue uh, for 2020. Um, they're going to be, as you'd expect, trading at a pretty rich valuation if that if that seven billion ish market cap winds up holding. Yeah, that would be about twenty eight times uh, sales. I mean, uh, given given the growth rate and the stickiness of the platform, that's not too surprising. Now, importantly, that's the pricing of the IPO. Uh, you and I, as investors, if you wanted to buy, there's no way of telling what kind of valuation this is going to get once you and I could get our hands on it. But let's just say it's going to be rich. I was going to say, Brian, 28 almost sounds palatable. Uh, you know, uh, we're used to seeing things in the 35 and 40 range, uh, which, you know, uh, on day one, day two, it, it, it would not shock me uh, to, to see it trade up in that space. It's just kind of where the market is. Um, I, I mentioned before uh, the founder's note and, and kind of citing some specific language from Jay Kreps. Um, this is a founder-led business. Uh, Jay Kreps is the CEO and one of the co-founders. He is not the only co-founder still in the mix. Yep. All three co-founders are actually still involved with the company. Two of them are on uh, uh, the, the board, but Jay Kreps is really the the uh, the person of interest that we need to focus on as the co-founder and CEO. Uh, the, the initial checks that I do on this guy really come back positive. Uh, on Glassdoor, he gets stellar reviews from employees, uh, 98% approval rating amongst his employees, and 93% of uh, employees would recommend the company. Uh, to a friend. Ownership is actually pretty decent too, given the stage of the game here. Uh, Jay Kreps himself owns, still owns about 12% uh, of the company. And if you look at all insiders, all insiders will still own uh, about uh, uh, a third of the company. So lots of skin in the game. Yeah, I, I think that's precisely what you want to see for a business that size. You know, owning more than ten percent of the business puts you in a spot where uh, you are really running the show, and financially, you know, the, the success of the business is going to dictate your personal financial success. Yeah. So what's exciting is while they have almost two hundred forty million in trailing revenue, uh, if you believe this company's numbers, they think that their TAM is 
enormous. Uh, if you just add up their current uh, market uh, potential, they basically see their current TAM at over $40 billion. If that number is true, that means that they are sub 1% of their current market penetration rate. Moreover, all of their markets that they're in are growing at a 20% plus clip. So if those are directionally accurate, this company has a long, long way to go. Yeah, you love to see that. I mean, that's plenty of green field ahead of them. And, you know, we've talked about how the, the technical sophistication of this business is a little bit beyond us. Um, the land and expand model seems very apt here. And it also, to me, seems like this business is probably a platform shift for how a lot of companies are handling data, working with data. Um, it's it's hard for me to fully appreciate how dramatic that is and how mission critical something like this becomes. But the more I read about it, the more I'm convinced that they're, they're probably onto something pretty dramatic. And if they can be the ones to bring it to customers, there is a lot of upside there for them. This company, when I was reading through it, so much reminds me of Twilio. I mean, the first time I heard of Twilio business, I was like, what do they do? <laughs> really? Like, what do they do? Clearly, they do something important because the numbers indicate that they're doing something uh, important. But that just took me a long time before I really grasped what Twilio does. I think it's going to be the same thing with, with Confluent, where I have a, good, a, a decent grasp of it right now. Uh, but as, as a non-technical, uh, I, I'm not going to be interacting with the software myself, so I can't really fully understand it. But I got a feeling over time, as I watch this company, I'm going to understand it more and more. Yeah, and, and we mentioned you know that this all came from an open source project, um, and I think the the risk section for this company is is perhaps a little different than it would be for a lot of other software players out there. Yeah, while they do call out that they are competing against uh, some other uh, big cloud companies, uh, all the usual suspects, uh, Google, uh, Microsoft, and Amazon, they basically say that their number one competitors is IT teams that choose to build this product themselves using the open source software uh, that is already out there. Now, that's both a, uh, a good thing that, yes, they're competing against companies doing it themselves. On the flip side, they're also that also means that there's a lot of education to do in the market to get customers on board. That is probably a big reason why this company's uh, losses are so big because they're investing so much upfront to educate the market on why they could use this product. So if they can do that successfully, and the numbers clearly indicate that they can, that gives them a long, long growth runway. Yeah. And actually, Brian, I, I love the Twilio metaphor that you brought up before, because, um, you know, a lot of the things that Twilio does, uh, companies could decide to do in-house, right? They could build that out and it wouldn't be, it, it would be hard for them. It, it might be a little expensive for them and they'd run into some, some issues making it as clean as what Twilio does. And it doesn't seem that hard as an outsider brutally difficult to, to make that decision as a customer. And what you realize over time is that leads to really, really sticky customer relationships. Um, and, and I think we tend to underestimate the do-it-yourself nature of software because uh, you, you can create something homespun, um, but you might run into other issues because of that. Working with someone who uh, has already cracked it and has cracked it for a bunch of different businesses just has such tremendous benefits for a big company. 
that's one thing that they point out in their founders letter. They say that if you're an Amazon, if you're a Google, if you're a Microsoft, you have the resources to do this on your own, to build this solution on your own. Keep in mind, these the, the, the co-founders were working for LinkedIn. They were tasked with essentially uh, creating this. If you're a smaller business or tech isn't a core competency for you, why would you go through the hassle of building this kind of thing from yourself when you can outsource it and have Confluent handhold you uh, to make sure that everything's working correctly. I think the customer service aspect uh, here shouldn't be overlooked. While this is primarily a self-serve project, lots of tech companies will want help with implementing the software, and that's something that Confluent can do. All right, Brian, putting it all together, what what are your high-level takeaways on this company, and where does it sit for you in terms of investable idea? Well, let's talk about the good first. So, uh, it's mission, it's mission driven. Uh, I really like the, the founding story. It's, I like the, uh, the founders a lot and that they're all still involved. I like the inside ownership. I like the high growth. I like the business model. Uh, the opportunity, if it's believed, is e- enormous. And we didn't get into this, uh, previously, but already 36% of this company's sales are in international markets. So that means that this concept already translates across borders. Uh, So I believe that their opportunity is huge. On the flip side, it's still hard for me to really grasp what they do and how they are how they are different. So I have to do more work on their um, on themselves. I don't like the fact that they're going to have to educate the market as they go. That's an enormous expense that this company is going to take on, and the fact that they are losing so much money. Uh, this is many, many, many years away from uh, from recouping their investments and reaching profitability. Uh, finally. The market cap that they're coming public at is going to be about $7 billion. For me to buy a company like this, I would have to believe that it has 10-bagger potential. So is this idea a $70 billion idea? Could this be a $70, $80, $100 billion company one day? It's, it is possible. We've seen lots of software companies that have reached that level, but I would have to really buy into that category. So for me, this checks a lot of boxes, but I wouldn't be a day one buyer. This would be more of a watch list idea. But how about you, Dylan? You know, Brian, I'm curious. Did you pull that 70 billion number? Uh, like, were, were you leading to that with any intentionality beyond the 10x? No. Why should I have been? Uh, well, it, it's just funny because I was looking at you know Twilio is about a 63 billion dollar business. I wasn't <laughs> sure if you were trying to create a nice, consistent, uh, you know, parallel throughout the episode, or if that if it was just a happy accident. Um, but but I do think it's illustrative of you know these ideas that start out seemingly as you know kind of niche use cases that that some businesses really latch onto early, blossoming into a much larger business. Um, there are so many elements of this company that that I like. I am I'm in the education camp still. Need to learn more. Need to better understand it. It it has the elements to me of. This could fundamentally change the way that a lot of businesses structure themselves and the way that different systems and applications interact with each other. I need a little bit more proof there before I buy that story. Yeah, fair, fair enough. And yeah, that is a happy accident that Twilio was almost a $60 billion company. And if you're going to look, Twilio is in theory uh, more of a niche product than this could be because Twilio just handles with communications tools. Now, communications tools are used by hundreds of thousands of businesses and Twilio has hundreds of thousands of customers. By contrast, this company only has 2,500 paying customers. But yeah, there you go. If you believe that this is the next Twilio, 10x returns could be possible. 
Who knows, Brian? Maybe that'll work its way into the title. The next Twilio? Question mark. <laughs> <laughs> Foreshadowing. Yeah, we didn't we didn't film in uh, Motley Fool Live today because the Fool is taking uh, a half day. And so we didn't get to ask our members for a, a title suggestion. So we are left to our own devices. So members, listeners, you will see exactly how creative we are with whatever winds up airing on today's show. <laughs> Can't wait to read it, Dylan. Uh, Brian, thank you so much, as always, for joining me. Thanks for having me. And shout out to our listeners of Fun for throwing this one on our radar. Uh, listeners, if you ever want something, uh, if you ever want a company to discuss, if you want us to tackle a topic, industryfocus at fool.com, or you can tweet us at MFIndustryFocus. Brian, drop your Twitter handle in there. I am at Brian Feroldi. He is also incredibly responsive on Twitter. So, you know, just saying. You're, you're, more, likely high- to, you're more likely to get a response from Brian than from me. I'm more of a lurker, I'll confess. I, I am highly addicted to Twitter. It's true. <laughs> And of course, if you're looking for more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass today, and thank you for listening. Until next time, Fool on. Fool on.